0: East.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose to simplify the administration of m and a deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M;A payments, and online stockholder solicitation Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. A year ago, I sat down with my friend Steve Galbraith to record the first conversation of Capital Allocators. We had a great time, I thought I might be onto to something, and I promptly lost the recording for the next two days. Eventually, I got the technology to work, recorded a few more, and went from there. It's been a great journey and an incredibly fun time, and I'm eagerly looking forward to the next year. One common refrain across my conversations has been the importance and subtleties of effective governance in making optimal investment decisions. Alongside Steve's incredible career as an analyst, strategist, portfolio manager, and entrepreneur in the asset management business. He has served on as many boards as anyone I know. I imagine many of you have heard Steve's story, but if not, you may want to have a listen to the very first episode of Capital Allocators before diving in here. Our conversation today starts with an update on Steve's personal investment in the Narragansett Beer Company and moves into a practical discussion inside the boardrooms of each of his current seats that range across a university, a large family office, a public company, a government agency, and two early stage fintech companies. We touch on time allocation, governance structure, board composition, adding value, the politics of boards, and the motivation of board members. We also get into an update on Steve's family office that he's managing alongside his wife Lucy, a seasoned distressed debt investor, and we close with a brief contrary outlook on the baseball season. Steve's perspectives and insights on the real world of boards is second to none, and this conversation is as full of gems as our first one. Thank you so much for your interest over the last year and for spreading the word. Please enjoy my second conversation with Steve Galbraith. Steve, every time we've tried to talk the last couple months, you've been in some version of what you refer to as boardroom hell. Yeah. So I want to get to there, but I think the best place to start has to be an update on Narragansett Brewing. There was a... Barron's article in September with you and Lucy and the Mini Cooper that's outside. Why don't you give an update on how the company's doing?
1: First of all, the beer industry is brutally difficult, as your listeners may know. You've basically got these monolithic guys like Budweiser, Miller Coors, who just beat the crap out of the independents, and they're doing a great job. We're budgeted to have our first profitable year in 2018.
0: Wasn't, weren't you budgeted to have the first profitable year last year?
1: Break even, roughly. Oh, okay. And, and so now a big part of this is actually, ironically, the Trump tax cuts. Because believe it or not, Gansett was viewed as a major brewery under the old tax laws. And so we had a huge excise tax that was actually uh, ascribed to the company. And that's going away. We have our own brewery up in Pawtucket now. So that's an update since we last met where we're brewing... In the state of Rhode Island for the first time in I think like 25 years, we've got a new product called Fresh Catch coming out, which is going to be what Corona is to Mexican to seafood. So, touch wood, uh, it's it's going great. It's going great. That's fantastic.
0: And and when you go and do like a, a piece like that for Barons. You, is there a noticeable impact?
1: It is. Well, you get you get weird approaches out of the woodwork. So random people will say, "Hey, do you need a marketing guy?" Or and you do get inbound approaches from potential buyers where you'll have private equity guys saying, "Hey, this looks like kind of interesting." So yeah, it's not dif- dissimilar, I imagine, to your podcast where you'll just get these rando observations from people you've never heard of, kind of coming across the transom.
0: Yeah, and so somehow that led to gansipping in the White House. Well, wow, this was
1: not directly. So I, I, I'm in the office, and one day I, I get an email from Mark, Mark Hellendrong, who's a brown guy who runs Gansett for us. And there's a picture of Sean Spicer with a high neighbor hat on. And yes, the White House actually had a day, I think it was, about Buy American. And we were the beer representation. And it turns <laughs> yeah. out Sean, his sister, actually works for like the... Beer Lobby of America or something. And they're both Rhode Islanders. And so that was the Gansett connection. Now, the irony is Gansett is the primo hipster kind of Williamsburg, Brooklyn beer. And so for it to be in the White House was just <laughs> dripping with irony, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we've made the big dive now.
0: So I want to spend a, a lot of the time talking about boardrooms. Yeah. And if I have, I may have the list wrong. But as far as I can tell, you are currently on the board of trustees at Tufts, the board of a large family office, Saeed Holdings, the board of Success Academy, board of directors and arrogance at Brewing, the board of Pazina Investment Management, two fintech companies, Equity Data Sciences and Lightkeeper. You used to be on the board of the Constitution Center in Philly, also did some time with Treasury and Office of Financial Research. How do you think about your time?
1: Yeah, it's funny. So my partner and wife made a pointed observation to me last year, like, how do you think about your time? And so I actually went through and kind of looked at the time spent on the different boards. And it's considerable. I probably spent as much as a third of my business time on boards last year. Now, there's an ebb and a flow to it, Ted. So for instance, with Tufts, a board asked me to do kind of a full diagnostic on our endowment at Tufts. And so that ended up being, in fact, that's where we had our Omaha experience where you took me out to meet Warren and asked him about endowment management. And so that was a flow, if you will, where there was an immense amount of time where I was spending hours on end meeting with industry folks and, and so on and so forth. With Success Academy, we've been embarking on a private real estate Effort. That's taken an immense amount of time. And then for other things like my, the Pisina board, that's been much more steady, Eddie, where it's a very predictable thing. It's actually not a huge amount of time, but it's done very, very efficiently. And I get as much out of that as I give. So each one will have its own kind of pace to it. And what you'll find is in and around crises or in and around forks in the road for the organizations, that's when you really end up having a time sink. The other observation I'd have is different boards have wildly different degrees of efficacy And what you find is the ones that are most functional actually tend to rise in and around crises or transitions, and the more dysfunctional ones tend to do the opposite, as you'd expect.
0: How do the organizations view you and your time as a board member? And so I guess a better way of asking that is, in a lot of these investment organizations, as a corollary, the board comes in. There's a quarterly board meeting. Maybe there's a set of materials set out. How much time do the organizations, maybe the Tufts Investment Committee in that direct example, think that you're spending and paying attention to what is happening on a day-to-day basis?
1: And, And so if I were to critique the board industry, not that it's an industry, but broadly is, the more thoughtful ones are acutely aware of it. And then, in fact, they'll almost map it out over a course of a year or... Even better, before you join a board with Tufts, they had a couple things. So Jim Stern had been the chairman of the board, unbelievably able, thoughtful guy. He sat down with you and very explicitly said, This is what we expect your financial commitment to be. This is what we expect your emotional commitment to be. This is what we expect your time commitment to be. And so coming in, you had that checklist with him. You knew precisely what was expected of you. Whereas some other not-for-profit boards I've been involved with, it's completely willy-nilly. They kind of come at you whenever they have a need, and it feels almost like a tax, and what's interesting, and then there's also- Tax in a financial sense, like they're coming at you because they need money. They need money, but also in, in many ways, the higher tax is your time. Like I, you get, if you're on an not-for-profit board, you get part of your functionality is writing checks. Like that's that goes with the territory. But I think the more egregious tax can be where- They set up meetings where it's a road to nowhere, where you'll just have either meetings or they'll ask you to go interview folks or do whatever without really giving enough thought to how much time it may
0: take. If you were to pick among these babies, what's the highest functioning board and how does it work?
1: It has been Tufts, which is unusual for university, As you well know, usually university boards are a huge, be unwieldy, and see not always that functional. And with Tufts, the thing that they've done particularly well is carving out people to have very specific value add for the organization. So my expertise happens to be finance. So I chaired the administration and finance committee. I've chaired the investment committee. I do think I can add a lot of value in terms of thinking about, okay, Tufts, we raised a hundred year bond. You know, how do you think about that as a financier? Well, I thought of it as quasi equity, and if you can raise a hundred years at four percent, you damn well better do it you know? <laughs> and so but that that's the kind of stuff where it's very targeted. They really have a very clear idea, and they're solving for that on the board. So we have academics on the board. We have philanthropists on the board. We have financiers on the board. And it's been very, very well structured.
0: In terms of number of people, it sounds like these are subcommittees. How many people are on each subcommittee?
1: So that's part of the calculus as well. So if you think about a large, anytime you have a board that size, you necessarily need subcommittees because that's the only way you're going to move the ball down the field. One of the issues, though, and this is one of the things I actually did as I took over chair of the investment committee, we basically cut it in half. From what to what? It had probably been as close to, it had been almost 15 people. And we're going to cut it down to about six or seven. And part of that, everyone involved was super able, very accomplished. But what you'll find on a committee structure is large is bad. And mainly because what happens is people can feel like someone else will take care of it. There's not a the sense of ownership. If there are only four, five, six of you on the committee, there's nowhere to hide. Right. And so it becomes far less easy to kind of say, hey, he or she's the expert on real estate. I'll defer to them.
0: And one of the things we've seen on the uh, particularly endowment investment committees the last couple of years is is a lot of turnover of CIOs. And it's nobody, I don't know, nobody knows from the outside, is that a reflection of some interim period of suboptimal performance? Or, you, know, you haven't had that at Tufts. Um, what are the dynamics that allow stability between the board and the investment team?
1: So in large part, it's the administrations, and by that I mean the president and typically the executive vice president will typically be a chief operating officer equivalent in a corporate context, really having a very strong interest in the success and continuity of the endowment. What you tend to find, and I did a lot of this as part of my due diligence, is when you have a lack of connectivity there, you typically have turnover. Because there's not a true understanding of what's going on at the endowment level. And oftentimes, it's not, it's not unsurprising, Ted, because oftentimes you'll have these institutions run by the classic liberal arts guy or gal. They'll view finance kind of as this weird secret sauce. What value can I add? And so it, they tend to suffer from benign neglect.
0: And is that, is that incumbent on the new CIO to make that connection?
1: I would argue it's initially incumbent on the committee chair because they will have the history, the continuity. In many ways, they can do the heavy lifting because the CIO really does need, in my view anyway, unbelievable support from the committee chair. And one of the interesting things at Tufts, just to use, it, put keep that in the focus, was we went from... A president, Larry Bacow, who's now the president of Harvard, world-class economist, uh, very financially literate, and Jim Stern, who ran a private equity firm, Cyprus, unbelievably well-versed on finance, to Tony Monaco, who's a world-class geneticist. And Peter Dolan, who ran Bristol Myers, but had more of a marketing than a finance. So if you think about that as an example, so Sally's the CIO. She went from a leadership group who knew precisely what the heck she did to one where it was completely Greek. And the risk would have been in that translation and in that change of leadership, does she fall through the cracks? I would argue we had a little bit of that early on. And that's where they kind of asked me to step up and, hey, can you serve as the bridge here? And fortunately, both Peter and Tony were and are very good listeners, and they would carve out the time to spend with me and Sally to understand the importance
0: of it. Yeah. And how does that translate through in those different regimes to the investment decision level?
1: So that's to me, all about communication. So let's step back. Again, using Tufts as an example, very specifically, we as a committee had a view that expected returns, forward-looking, not backward-looking, obviously, are low. We also had a view on what the university's finances were going to look like. We actually took our spend rate down, which is very unusual in higher education today. And we're doing it in a gradated fashion over several years, but we're taking it down to three and a half to four and a half percent from four to five. And what percentage of
0: the university budget's coming from and down? It's about
1: fifteen percent. So it's much lower than a Yale or Harvard. And so, in theory, we could a take higher risk because we're not as big a part of this. You know, the the annual budget. But then you also have to look at the finances of the institution. If you look at a Harvard, for instance, the business school is a very high margin school. Law schools are very high margin schools. Law and diplomacy at Tufts or the med school aren't high margin schools, So all of this kind of factors into those decisions and it has to be done in a holistic fashion. That's the main thing I would take away from it is you have to really look at it in total. Is
0: it typical in that context that the investment side and the finance side of the university are communicating with each other? So
1: it's interesting. So as part of this diagnostic that I, I did on the Tufts endowment, universities across the board do it differently. In some instances, the CIO reports into the CFO, which I view is somewhat problematic. In most instances, they report into the COO. At Yale, David reports into Solovey. And so some of that may just be because of his status and what he's done. But I do think it matters. Like the reporting lines matter. And I think that will influence investment and it'll influence all kinds of things.
0: I think I'd be remiss. You know, you mentioned a conversation we had with Warren Buffett, about the Tufts Endowment, what did he say?
1: That was awesome. So first of all, I didn't even realize this. You may have remembered it. Warren actually ran the Grinnell Endowment. So as kind of a nightline, you know, because his day job wasn't interesting enough, the president of Grinnell actually asked him to run the endowment. I think this may have been the late 60s, early 70s. And he told the most amazing story because we were asking him, if you'll remember over the dinner, you know, if you were given to become chair of the Tufts Endowment or Investment Committee, what would you do? The lesson he told me is keep the committee small Ideally, a a size of one, two can be a crowd. And I thought that was classic Buffettism. But then he kind of talked about how he invested. And he said, look, Steve, the the thing you got to remember is you should invest it as if it were your own money. And then he told us how with Grinnell, he put like a third of the endowment into TV stations (laughs) and he did it on a highly levered basis. So they put in like $5 million of equity to make a $70 million investment. And it was like a 10 bagger. Today, Grinnell, its endowment per student is one of the highest in the country. And that's because the decisions Buffett made, whatever, 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing meeting. Let's move
0: on from Tufts to a large family office. What are the different board dynamics in in the family office context?
1: So it's fascinating because you have the patriarch who's made all the money, who was an unbelievably successful entrepreneur. And then you have the next generation, in this case, the son, who is equally able, who runs his own firm where they're effectively an outsourced CIO. And so one of the tensions you have is the family dynamic of just the succession of the of the money over time and you 've got to be very conscious of that but what the, what is that tension Well, on the one hand, you have the patriarch who who made all the money, and on the other hand, you have the son who 's unbelievably able. And has his own visions of how he wants to kind of succeed on his own. And so you have that constant battle back and forth like any father-son. In this case, because they have so much respect for them, uh, each other, it really has worked out. And one of the things we've done or they've done with Said Holdings is they're actually pivoting the investment structure to become much more direct investing. And so this is an interesting dynamic. So you have a father who made all his money doing stuff. And the actual corpus of the endowment, if you will, was invested with people pushing paper around, i.e. money managers. And collectively, they came to the conclusion, this isn't what I want for my son, or more importantly, my grandson and granddaughter. And so they're actually going to be reallocating a lot of the money into direct investing in companies. So we've completely pivoted the nature of the organization. And I think it's really exciting for everyone involved.
0: And so how does the board work with. It's the family, it's their money, it's the father, the son. What's your role in that context?
1: So it's interesting. Many of the board members were more directly tied up with Mr. Saeed, Wafiq. And so they knew Wafiq from the early days. And so they'll be septuagenarians, octogenarians, and will have known him. I'm kind of in between. I'm somewhat between Halid, the son, and Wafiq. So, to some extent, I view myself as a bridge between the generations where I hopefully can have an equally sound dialogue with both of them. But it, to be, make no mistake about it, it is challenging because at the end of the day, it is their money. But you're still a fiduciary. And so you do have to push back. And I found the more productive meetings are the ones where you say no. You say, look, I don't think this is what we should be doing. So, one of the things we introduced, for instance, with Said Holdings is we wanted to introduce kind of a living will, meaning what? how are we going to behave in the next downturn and, and actually map out kind of a game plan, okay? Because it's inevitably going to come. And so this is hopefully going to take away some of the tension you'd have in the moment. So things like that, I think, allow you to get away from some of the day-to-day tension you may have in dealing with someone more. Because money is deeply personal, right? He's made all this money. He's had all this success. But if you can kind of map it out strategically and analytically and systematically, I think it avoids a lot of the emotional stuff. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about
0: NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. And is there a governance structure? I guess there has to be. Is it a, You mentioned being a fiduciary. It's not just money in their bank account then. There's a trust. There's a foundation. Is that?
1: Yes. And, they, and it, it's interesting. And it's not dissimilar to a lot of other wealthy families. They'll have a dividend. So it's the equivalent of the spend rate. And so they'll have an idea of what their annual nut that they want to be able to spend to take out of the endowment or however you want to think about it. And so in many ways, it's very, very similar to Tufts. You should, in theory, be able to take the ultimate long view. And I think that's one of the reasons they pivoted towards direct investing, because they felt like look the expected returns from financial markets are x whatever you may think they are we actually think a way of compounding capital better will be direct investment in companies that are long-term compounders you know and i'll give you an example one of the things they were kicking around looking at were um uk mortuaries They're great businesses, right? And it's like one of these things where, where you you know it's actually highly regulated. It's very predictable, and and that was the classic case that Hal had kind of talked about. This might be the type of business that we should invest own in for a long time, forever, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, I'm sympathetic to that. It's fun, actually. It's very interesting.
0: So, if we pivot a little bit to for-profit boards, and you know, you've been involved in a bunch of financial companies, so it's you know, Pazina and Equity Data Science and Lightkeeper. Curious about how you spend your time what the governance process is like, and then you know, we could talk about parallels across the two.
1: So Pazina is the best one to talk about because I've been on the board for about 10 years. So we, he went public in 2007, right before the crash, and right at the peak of the value, value, it was probably the last time value had outperformed. And I had known Rich. He actually hired me at Bernstein. One of the things Rich was very cognizant of in constructing his board is he didn't want anyone on the board who needed to be on the board. In other words, to collect need, a check, you got it. yeah, and I I'm a firm believer in that. And he actually did want friends and family to be not family but friends on the board because he wanted people that would look out for you know not just his interests but thought like him. And so you know some people would argue that's nepotistic or that's not the way you're going to lead to good governance. I couldn't disagree more. I mean, be, because we know each other, Joel Greenblatt's on the board as well, Charlie Johnston, who had run distribution for Morgan Stanley, and Dick Marowicz who, who was head of one of the accounting practices. Because we're all friendly and know rich, we can call BS.
0: It's yeah, much it's the easier. right kind of friendship. It is.
1: It is the kind of right friendship, and so you you'll, you'll just so the meetings are so much more efficient. Because there isn't a lot of process and procedure. It's like, look, these are the five things we got to get right. And so we ended up being much, much more focused on the health of the enterprise.
0: What might those five things be?
1: (laughs) So right now, one of the things they've been really wrestling with, as are a lot of managers, distribution right so they've got an unbelievably strong institutional footprint and so all the consultants love them they're one of the few value managers who've stuck to their knitting they do what they're going to say they have a defensible definable niche with that group but their their retail distribution just isn't where it needs to be so what do we do do we go out and hire a bunch of people do we go out and partner with somebody and so we'll have deep dives at a board-level meeting going into that issue. What strategically should we do? We're still debating it, so I don't have an answer for you. But that's the kind of thing that, to me, will have a much greater impact on the ultimate value out of that firm. If we get that right, suddenly you can have a step change in the valuation yeah. of the
0: firm. And so you, as a board member, without retail distribution expertise personally, what do you view as your
1: value-add in that conversation? So it, – it, in that instance very little whereas Charlie Johnston who ran a big part of for Morgan Stanley has been super helpful like both in terms of hey we should talk to this person or hey we should get a presentation from him or her and, and so and that's it. whereas you know Rich often looks to me for our discussions on internal compensation because of my experience at Maverick and elsewhere, and at one point, so like seven years ago, they were getting pinched hard from hedge funds because hedge funds were making all, a lot of money. Or my Morgan Stanley experience. At one point, they were losing people to broker dealers. And so that would be my value add, like not just getting the McLogan reports on what people are being paid, but what is the reality of it? Yeah. And so that was oftentimes where I could add value. And Now, you know, one of the things I've talked to him about is, you know, would a Pazina product fit within an endowment model? And so, you know, that for their core product, probably not, but they have a very focused kind of a 15 position portfolio. Guess what? That actually would fit into the way an endowment looks at the world. So hopefully I can bring that expertise to the board.
0: So that type of board where, let's say, familial, but the right kind of a family and people are going to call BS to each other. Is that something that an investment committee of a family or certainly a family or an endowment could think of as a different way of constructing the board.
1: Yes. And that's what Wafik has done with Said Holdings. So it's, it, and that's a good analog, Ted, because that's exactly what, the way he thought about it. And I give him credit. He's like, look, I want people that will say no to me. No one on that board needs to be on the board. We have the family's interest in line. You know, that's, a, that's what we're thinking about. It's, it's very, very similar. That's, that's a really interesting point. And is there a way for a university or a foundation to pull that off? It's harder. Maybe a foundation. With a university, I think there's so many stakeholders, it's really, really tough. I mean, the main thing I've taken away from the Tufts experience is I had massively underestimated the complexity of your university. And it's really interesting. So you see it inevitably when you have a new board member come on who's a titan of industry. So at Tufts, we had a bunch of, you know, CEO, Pfizer, Bristol, DuPont, and a bunch of Wall Street clowns like myself. And you all come on the board and you're like, oh, I can't just fire all these people. And then, you know, like the academics are like, "Um, have you ever heard of tenure? You know, and so, and then you start thinking about like community relationships, right? So Tufts is actually in about seven different cities. We're in Medford, we're in Somerville, Boston. Uh, Grafton, which is where the vet school is and, and those types of relationships. And then you have the student relationships and then you have the alumni relationships and it's like, oh my gosh, they are so much more complex. And and then, you know, getting into pricing. So we had a we had a meeting about two weeks back on this. You know, everyone's like, oh, college prices are just way, way too high. So everyone's charging 70K a year. It's all, it's running amok. It's all crazy, blah, 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 blah. List price is completely, almost completely irrelevant in college pricing right now the average person at yale is being charged about twenty four thousand dollars a year because of financial aid you got it so and and so there's all these layers of complexity where oh well what is the income so people making between zero and forty thousand actually pay nothing to go to yale right and so there's so much more nuance into the actual management of the uh enterprise or institution that make it really really challenging
0: So what is the optimal board structure for for an institution like that? I mean, we talked a little bit about sort of subcommittees, but how about sort of in the context of the types of voices around
1: the table? You do need diversity. You need some representation of the various stakeholders. But look, the reality is money does make, unfortunately, the world go round. And if you think about the problems, quote unquote, any uh, school like Tufts or anyone have, a lot of the solutions are more endowment or more money. So it's a really tough thing, Ted. You do need bluntly a bunch of folks around the table that can write big checks, right? I mean, that's just the reality of it. But I think what you need, so the typical university board will probably be 30 to 40 people. And then what you really need is a strong executive committee where you have about 10 people that are kind of running the corpus day to day with, with the, administration. And then you try and get expertise at the committee level. So looking at curriculum, looking at uh, advancement, endowment, or uh, fundraising, whatever you want to call it, risk, so on and so forth. And so it's 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 challenging. It's very challenging. So
0: let's turn to another body, the body of government. Yeah. You, know, you spent a little bit of time on this group with the Treasury. Yep. What was that like as a board experience or advisor experience?
1: It was bizarre. <laughs> um, and, and it, and it, well, really? Yeah. So the, the Office of Financial Research was kind of put in place in response to the financial crisis. And so Dick Berner, who was the chief economist at Morgan Stanley, i would worked with super able, thoughtful, smart guy. He helped assemble the team of volunteers to come down there. And I guess to me, what was odd was there were, I mean, there were a bunch of Nobel laureates on this board. You had a bunch of very high powered risk managers from Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, places like that. But what was challenging about it was because we met so infrequently, it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose when we got down there. So we only had a few meetings each year and there wasn't all the committee work or the interim work that really allowed you to feel like progress was being made. And, and so what would happen is we'd go down there for the day and the meetings would be just chalk- a blocked such that you felt like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking from a fire hose. And so my takeaway from that is I really do think you need, when you're thinking about governance, if you can cut it up in smaller bites, I do think it's more effective.
0: Yeah. And what was the mission of that group?
1: I think it was to sit around and get input from thoughtful people about, OK, what are the next big systemic risks that we have to be contemplating? So in that sense, it was very helpful because you had a senior woman from Wells Fargo and she was talking a lot about cybersecurity and so for someone as an insider from, a you know, one of the largest banks in the world to be able to articulate the urgency of that to D.C. Paul's was very valuable. And so to me, that messaging was the real value of that body yeah. where you could have practitioners tell you, no, this is what I worry about day to day. Like you're out here worrying about the housing market. That's yesterday's battle. You know, we do have a tendency to fight last year's war, and I think that happens often in government, what this body was set up to do was to think about what's, you know, next year's problem. Was
0: there anything actionable that could come of it? Well, we- Other than, you know, high quality idea sharing.
1: It's high quality yeah. idea sharing at the end of the day. I think one of the thing, the other learnings from that experience was you don't want to be too ambitious. You're not going to change the world dramatically. It's more about, okay, if we can get up, set up a systematic function where- we're you know, having the ideas brought among a, a group of reasonably thoughtful people about what we should be worrying about. That in and of itself has value.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's turn to the last bucket of things that are probably just the opposite where you can have a meaningful impact in sort of early stage companies. So you've done this now twice with fintech companies. There are probably half a dozen others I don't know about. Yeah. And what is that board dynamic
1: like and, and
0: how are you trying to you know add value in those contexts.
1: That is so much more hands-on, direct, helping the enterprise generate revenue. So I'll give you the, <laughs> the, right. the, so the two examples would be Lightkeeper, which is a fintech company that looks at performance attribution software. It's, it's much, much more than that. It was founded by the guy who invented Tamale, which was a research sharing platform, and then Equity Data Science. And in both instances... It's very much, hey, could you get me an intro with John Jacobson at Highfield? Or could you get Roberto Mignone to try out the platform? Or hey, what about Maverick? What's Lee thinking about this? So I think a huge part of my value add is bluntly just, hey, picking up the phone and saying, this is a pretty cool product. Could you give it a shot? And I think my ability to open doors there is actually pretty good. At the end of the day, the product's got to fly on its own merit. Or not, and then we just actually had a Lightkeeper board meeting last week, and this was interesting where you can also be helpful strategically. So should we pivot? So right now Lightkeeper is only in the hedge fund vertical. Should we go in the long only vertical as well? It's a pretty easy thing to transfer to, and we had a bunch of folks from Morgan Stanley Prime Broker on the board, I'm on the board, other folks like that, and we basically came to the conclusion that the wallet share. We're only in about, you know, 3% of hedge funds, their ability to pay and the ability to track performance on the short side is actually really significant to hedge fund managers. We decided, why don't we try and get more wallet share of the existing vertical rather than move over into say a Pizina or an Alliance Bernstein or whomever. So those are the types of things where hopefully you can add value as well.
0: So now let's talk a little bit about your own little company. You know, we started,
1: I guess, a year ago talking about you
0: have your sort of family office with your wife. How's it going?
1: It's been great. It really has. It's been satisfying. We're making a few shekels. We're having fun. We're kind of doing it our way. One of the tensions we talked about earlier is, you know, I I don't have a lot of interest in having a lot of employees at this point in my career. So we've engaged in some interesting outsourcing things. And what what are those outsourcing pieces? One is a CFO, which is someone who will write the checks, keep the electricity going, things like that. But a couple other things we've looked at. We, we're actually currently working with a group of Indian analysts, where it's an outsourced effort. Where we have very, we give them very specific marching orders. If we want you to look at this company this way, could you do the work for us? Do a deep dive on it. These are the parameters we want you to do. And 24 hours later, you get back a file and you go at it. I'll give you a couple examples. So we're looking at Dish again. Which is Charlie Ergen's thing, and we wanted them to do a true deep dive on the Spectrum assets. It's pretty arcane stuff, you know, there's a lot of nuance to it, and we basically said, hey, go at it. And they've put together really high quality work. We're is asking, this
0: financial hey. models?
1: Some of it's financial models, a more direct financial model, is we asked them to look at the Aetna CVS merger and what might come out of that so that would be a very specific financial forecast discounted cash flow here's synergies here's cost synergies here's revenue synergies what are some assumptions on it with the spectrum stuff it's much more looking at it's almost like an asset value analysis okay they have this band here what are comps in the market trading for and what you know what's the asset value to it but it's been an interesting exercise and i personally like it the tension, not the tension, but you know, the, the thing we're going to have to decide is: do we really want to grow this sucker and turn it into There's business. the business itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have some outside capital. We now. do. We've taken in yeah. a, a separately managed account, which has been great. We do have some friends and family money, and um, that's kind of the challenge: is do you want to give up the lifestyle stuff, or because or, look, the minute you take a dollar of outside money, you have to be on it twenty four seven. That's just sure. the way I feel. I mean, it's just the way I believe yeah. to do
0: it. So you've spent a lot of time at Maverick. You had your own fund. You have well-resourced hedge fund with lots of internal analysts, very smart people. You have what you can afford on your own. Now you've got Indian outsourcing. What do you think the analytics of companies in the financial industry looks like five or 10 years from now?
1: Boy, I mean, everyone th- seems to believe it's all about artificial intelligence and counting the number of cars in Walmart parking lots and things like that. And look, Ted, you know, I, I'm just a Luddite. I'm sure it's just, but I I have to believe I, I still prefer what Todd and Warren and Ted do, which is kind of the three of them have very little incremental analytical resources. They're trying to find good, undervalued businesses and just own them for a long time. But I, I'm, I'm swimming against the current here, Tech, because all the, the dough seems to be moving more towards quant, more towards artificial intelligence, more towards data scraping, all these kind of things. And I just think that's a tough game to win. It's kind of like an arms race. And some folks can do it. I think at the end of the day, it comes back to judgment.
0: Yeah. And even in the way that you like to approach things, what's the difference in the quality of the analytics you're seeing from the outsourcing team in India and the variety of analysts you've worked with directly?
1: It's very comparable. And and then the difference is this is this is really directed, highly highly directed. Where one of the one of my faults as a as a leader of analysts in the past was I tended to give people too much rope and let them kind of wander on their own little paths to to find truth whereas here because it's such a frankly commercial relationship it's no. These are the eight things I want you to do. And this is the order I want you to do. Them, and I want them by this period of time. And so in a weird way, it's probably been good for me as a personality type because I've probably too much of a marshmallow previously with my analytics teams. Whereas here it's like, no, these are the things I need to know. Do it, yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, more mercenary. What are you seeing
0: now in the markets?
1: You know, the the frustrating part of it is you, you're still getting. We've still been in a market where it's a highly, highly momentum charge market. So if you look at the factor returns to value versus the factor returns to momentum, they're about as divergent as they've been since the tech bubble. And so that is the the frustrating part. The good part is we're finally getting some volatility back in the market and you're finally being able to add some pretty decent alpha on the short side where companies that are, you know, either in bad financial position or, you know, woefully out of step with their product mix are getting whacked if if they're missing and people are starting to uncover that. So the good news is you are just it it feels as if the kind of monolithic march up of 2017 is coming a little bit to an end. Uh, and then the other good news is valuation spreads in the market are wide again. And so that should lead to very robust returns for active
0: management. You seem to be at the hub of lots of interesting ideas and people and information. What is the kind of the most interesting thing that's been thrown your way over the last year?
1: I – I still come back to education, so it's either Success Academy or Tufts. And so with Success Academy, it's – and you know this well, and you've been a huge supporter of ours, so thank you. But, you know, we're now up to 15,000 kids, and they had the highest test scores in the entire state of New York. The average family income is $35,000 a year. So one of the things we're now contemplating is – hey, wouldn't it be really interesting to think about what is the true societal financial benefit of this academy? And the reason I say that is if you look historically for that cohort of income population and that, that where they're, they're located, a, a very large number of them would not end up going certainly to college. Some of them would end up in, incarcerated or whatever. The financial impact we get the emotional stuff. So I'm 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 Mr. Softy, I totally get the emotional stuff. But what is the actual financial impact of educating at a very high level at scale fifty thousand kids, a hundred thousand kids, whatever the number is. And that's one of the, the puzzles I think we're gonna try and tease out over the next year.
0: But well, you place that in the context of call it the macro environment and trends in technology. You have on the one hand, there's this incredible success of Success Academy taking a huge number of kids and giving them a high quality education. Yeah. On the other hand, you're putting them into an economic environment in five or 10 years that is, feels a lot tougher from a human capital deployment of resources. Yeah. So how, how do you put that in the context of an assessment like that?
1: It raises the urgency of what we're doing. Their only hope
0: to compete
1: is if we get them educationally up to par with where they should be. And so, look, I mean, I'm getting all sappy in my old age, but this is our first graduating class at success. It's 17 kids. So I got involved 10 years ago. That 17 is going to be 50, 200, 500 within five years. All 17 got into college. I think one of their parents had gone to college. So if you think about that and the ability to compete in what you're articulating five years out, they got a shot at least now, yeah. right? They've got a shot, and that's what we want. They wouldn't have had a shot without that educational backing. And to me, that's the challenge: is how can we do this as a country at scale? Uh, forget the politics. I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about is the politics of boards. You know, two seconds on the Constitution Center—that is the ultimate. Nonpartisan board, right? The Constitution should be one of those things. We may have different interpretations of it, but let's all agree that it matters, right? And that was a fascinating board because, on the one hand, we had the DeVos family who are well known conservatives, but we had Ed Rendell, you know, a, a stronghold on the Democratic side, or Amy Gutman at Penn. And, and we had at one point George Bush, 41, was the president of the Constitution. Then it was Clinton. Then it was Jeb. Then it was Biden. And what was really cool is, you know, you couldn't have more politically diverse people on that board, yet we were all pulling the damn war at the same time. That's what's really cool when you see boards govern with, with very different philosophies, but still moving. Right. So, but that's yeah. a rarity. Yes. So why don't, let's talk
0: more about the politics of boards. Yeah. What is it that drives it? Is it human ego? Is it agendas and, and Tell some stories about what you've seen. Maybe some of the ugly instead of some of the good.
1: Yeah, look, I do think so, so. I do think some of it is is ego. At the end of the day, you'd like to think we're all, you know, Mother Teresa and doing these for great reasons. But I, you know, there is an ego element about it. And victory has a thousand fathers, and defeat is an orphan, right? And so I have no illusions if if success ends up do Success Academy, for instance does end up doing poorly on tests for whatever reason, I don't think it's likely, people will abandon it hand over fist. I'm sure you'll see that. And I saw it a little bit You know, with the Constitution Center. It was tough raising money. And you had very, very wealthy people on the board that sometimes didn't give quite as much as you would have hoped. That's one of the things you see on the boards, where you're looking around the table and you kind of know how many zeros that person has next to their net worth. And then you look at what our actual fundraising has been. And that's not to point to the Constitution Center in particular. That's more a general comment across my not-for-profit boards are, you know, what percent of your net worth or income are you giving to this cause? And that's where it can get a little bit petty and a little bit, you know, disappointing, frankly. Another thing you often see, and this is true uh, in, in many of the boards I've been on, is Oftentimes, 20% of the people do do 80% of the work, right? A lot of people do want to be on the board just for the prestige or the resume impact. Well, that's no good. And so I do think you have to be more thoughtful when constructing these boards. Like maybe you just have them as, you know, in in a university context, it would be the parents council or some of these other things where you allow wealthy people to have an affiliation with the university without taking up necessarily a board seat. That, those have been my big, biggest disappointments, where people who you know are super able, super philanthropic potentially, and they're just not giving what they could to the board. That's That can be disconcerting. Yeah.
0: The notion of job risk and investing is sort of popping into my head because in that situation, you have this very delicate balance, right? You have someone who's not being productive in whatever you – know, it could be financial resources, it could be in their time and energy, their ability, and yet there's – the potential for them to be more impactful, what do you do?
1: It's hard. So the better boards I've been involved with, so one of the things, again, coming back to Tufts, you ask leadership to have the direct conversation. So one of the things, the better boards I'm on, they'll have an annual self-review process.
0: Of the board members.
1: Yes. Now, not all boards do this. I think it should. I think so to of me all
0: the boards you're on, how many of them two. do that?
1: Only two. And it's Pizina and Tufts. Now, Pizina, you have to. As a public company, you actually have to do it. None of the other boards do it. And at Tufts, we do it... It's le- a little bit less of a self-review, but a little bit more. There's a, what's called the trusteeship committee, and that's where you'll review the different trustees, and there'll be an assessment they, how the how like are they peer doing? review you of gotta, the other trustees. Yeah, and is it anonymous? Yeah, <laughs> and, but it, and then we'll do a review of the chair, and we'll do a review of the president. But I think that's best practices. We're going to implement that at Success Academy, and I think that'll be a good and helpful. Practice. But look, what you're really getting at in some levels is the the difference between a not for profit and a for profit. When you're on a for profit, you're getting financial benefit from the relationship. So at Gansett, if we do well, I'm going to make a lot of money. If we sell Gansett for 50 million bucks or whatever, it's going into my pocket. With Pazina, I'm paid. With Saeed Holdings, there's a stipend. So there's, you know, you have financial Now, hopefully, good board members don't need that, where, but by definition, on a not-for-profit, you serve at your leisure. I mean, you're not being paid to do it. And I think that does lead to complications.
0: All right, Steve, in the last year, I've adjusted the closing questions that I've Uh, asked. And some of them are the same, and we're not going to do those again. But there are a couple that I want to shoot your way that I didn't ask you the first time around. So the first is, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Without question, philanthropy. And not money. It's – be an engaged citizen. Both of my parents, it was unacceptable to sit on your ass. Like, it, we, we were so- <laughs> Those are two
0: different <laughs> lessons, by the way. I know,
1: I know. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, as you know, my dad passed a couple of years back. and And in hindsight, you know, I never, while he was alive, was as effusive as I should have been about what a good citizen he was. You know, he chaired the Chamber of Commerce up in Providence. He chaired the United Way. My mom has always been incredibly active in the arts and things like that. And it wasn't chest beating. It it wasn't you're going to do this. It's leading by example. I saw them do this. And it's interesting when we talk to our kids now because they're in their 20s. And they're just starting to articulate that. Like, hey, you guys actually do a lot. And there's no better feeling. Yeah.
0: And is that you know I think it, at times people look at it and say, well, once you've made it in your career, you know, in some of these nonprofits, yeah, there's a there's a notion that you're going to give a certain amount of money that then down the road you can have time and people will want your money and therefore you can get involved. How do you think about that with your kids who clearly are at the very beginning of their careers? And, and how should people think about getting involved when it's not tied to being wildly financially successful?
1: So look, I can only tell from my own experience, but I had zero belief that I was actually going to do well financially. Like This has all been a complete positive surprise to me. But when I first joined Chase straight out of Tufts, I would spend weekends working at the Thompson Square Park Boys Club with underprivileged kids playing wiffle ball and stuff like that. I was making no money. I wasn't on any board. It was nothing like that. It's just I love sports. I love the kids. I did that. When I joined Sanford Bernstein, I was involved with the East Harlem Tutorial Program. One of the kids, Carlton O'Neill, I'll never forget it. He He was in eighth grade. I was tutoring from eighth grade to 11th, 12th grade, something like that. I told him, if you ever get into college, I'll pay for it. It uh, sounds very altruistic now, but I thought there's no chance in hell. He's never getting into college. <laughs> he got into college. He's the first of my children to graduate. He graduated from SUNY Oswego. I was at Maverick at the time. I flew up, went to his graduation. He was the first in his family to go to college. I had, a, I hope, a really huge impact in that kid's life. And it was when I wasn't making any money. Like I was tutoring him when I was 28, 30 years old, whatever I was at the time, And it had nothing to do with ego at that point or success or being on a board. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? You know, I come back to what Barton used to say is you're much better off reading The Economist cover to cover than listening to CNBC or The Wall Street Journal. So I do tend to look at things like The Week or... The Economist, or things that are a little bit outside of the traditional Wall Street stuff, I do like reading biographies and getting things like that. So I'm reading Antonin Scalia's papers right now, and I do get a lot out of those types of books, but I can't point to anything, Ted. And, and now you've given me something to go away and think about.
0: All right, good, good. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Well, it's, it's the importance of family. Right, so it's one of those things for all these boards and all this damn stuff I do, I hope it was never at the expense of my kids. I I hope if you sat down with them and they'd say, yeah, dad's doing, mom and dad, because my mom, uh, Lucy's every bit as involved as I am with these things. I certainly, God, I hope it was never at their expense. Like I hope, you know, we went to all the horse races, uh, you know, horse outings, the baseball games, and I really do do, God, I hope that was not – I hope it wasn't an either or, you know. Um, I haven't asked my kids that. That'll be something to ask. But that would be the life lesson is, you know, family first.
0: Yeah. All right. It's uh, spring training.
1: <laughs> You're, you are, you are
0: scared. You are scared. So, so what's going to happen with the Sox? Are they going to finish in third or fourth?
1: Well. At this point last year, I believe it was Brian Cashman who said the Red Sox were the Golden State Warriors of baseball and everyone had anointed them the World Series champs, whereas this year that sounds suspiciously familiar about a team in the Bronx. It does, doesn't it? So my guess is Tanaka's going to have a torn rotator cuff. Thanks for saying that. Aaron Judge is going to hit 230. And And strike out 400 (laughs) times. Yeah. Now, look, you're right. The Yankees lineup is Absolutely terrifying. I mean, it is – to have Aaron Judge batting second, you know, it's just – it is absolutely terrifying. He draws a lot of walks. He you know? does. But pitching wins baseball. And so if price comes back and sale can pitch a whole year as opposed to just two-thirds of a year and our bullpen can do okay, I like our chances.
0: All right. We'll have well, well, to bet this, a dollar. There's this great uh, – We will I have, I have made larger bets and lost – we will bet a dollar on the season. And I am reminded of the great investment expression that I will share with you now that hope, Steve, is not that's a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That all right. True. All Until right, the next time. That's that's all. Thanks, Paul. great. Thanks, Ted. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too. So I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.